Hello, friends. Welcome to the fourth in the five-day seminar to stop worrying and begin living. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, make us nails on the wall. Fasten securely in our place. Then from these things so common and so small hang bright pictures of thy face. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're happy to have Don and Nancy with us again. And will you sing for us? Thank you. And now it affords me real pleasure to introduce to you Dr. U.D. Register, Professor of Nutrition at the School of Health in Loma Linda, California. Welcome, Dr. Register. We're so happy that you've taken time out of your very heavy schedule to be with us. Uh, the topic tonight has to do with nutrition and stress. And could you tell us, Doctor, something about uh, does nutrition have anything really to do with stress, or is that just sort of a cliché? Nutrition has a lot to do with stress. The adrenal cortex is very important in uh, withstanding stress. And if we have a poor diet that is deficient in a number of B vitamins and deficient in vitamin C, then we have a decreased ability to withstand stress. For example, if we eat a poor diet, as some of the typical Americans do, where they have about 17% of their calories as sugar, 18% as visible fats, 3% as alcohol, and some up to 10% as alcohol, this means that over one-third of the calories in the U.S. diet contains 
no B vitamins, no vitamin C, no minerals, and no protein. And then another 17% comes from uh, refined cereal grains, which are also low in B vitamins and much lower than whole grain products. Now we could talk a little about the effect of a deficiency of some of these B vitamins if you would like yes, to. Yes, uh, uh, before we went on the air, uh, I was asking you about this vitamin uh, B complex, all this family of vitamins and how it affects, how it really affects a person's nerves. I was am amazed at uh, the light that you shed. Perhaps you'd share it with us now. Well, in general, we can say if a person has a deficiency of <coughs> vitamin B1 or vitamin B2 or niacin, uh, which are all B vitamins, uh, and you may not have any outward clinical symptoms of a deficiency of these vitamins. Dr. Campbell said that the uh, body is more, the brain is more sensitive uh, to nutritional change than any other part of the body. Is that right? And early in a deficiency, you will observe depression, irritability, uncooperativeness, uh, inability to think uh, clearly or coherently. One develops vague fears, ideas of persecution. Uh, they may have emotional instability. And just that feeling of inadequacy will make them react more violently to stress. Another vitamin that is of interest, too, is vitamin B6. There are five different chemicals that are produced in the brain that are necessary for normal brain function, and these all require this vitamin B6. Uh, B6, for example, is found at one of the richest sources in a banana. Is that a fact? And the whole grain cereals, and I like to eat a good breakfast of a banana with whole grain cereals and other fruit. But whole grains contain about three times as much of this vitamin as refined cereal vitamin grains B6. or refined breadstuffs. And studies have shown in women in early pregnancy, two different studies, that the typical U.S. diet simply didn't have enough of this vitamin to meet their needs. And some of the things we observe in a vitamin B6 deficiency is irritability, inability to think clearly. One develops a hypnotic type of trance. A hypnotic type? Yes. As you know, you can develop hypnosis by the ordinary means and by hypnotic drugs, but here by diet you can develop the same oh, type thanks. of situation. And in the later <coughs> stages of vitamin B6 deficiency, one will develop convulsions. And what did you say are some of the foods that have uh, the vitamin whole B6 grains, and the vitamin uh, complex? Whole grains, green leafy vegetables, bananas, nuts, uh, peas and beans, legumes, milk. These are all good sources of the B complex. Well, the most natural vitamins. food then. Right. So you don't have to be a millionaire to... Uh, Take the type of food that will keep you from going into hypnosis, right? Now, I was going to mention to you these uh, five chemicals that are produced uh, through the action of vitamin B6. One is serotonin. And if this substance uh, gets too low in the body, you feel sleepy all the time. It's just like going on a tranquilizer all the time. On the other hand, there's another chemical that is produced from glutamic acid, an amino acid, we call this gamma aminobutyric acid. 
And if this is low in the brain, one develops convulsions. And two hormones that are necessary to uh, prepare us for fight or flight in cases of stress are epinephrine and norepinephrine. These are produced in the brain as well as in the adrenals glands. And in an absence of B6, you cannot produce these at an adequate rate. And so the first defense of stress has been decreased. And you can eat more bananas <laughs> and more whole grains right. and natural foods to prevent this. Right. Tremendous. So there are many things that we eat that can affect our ability to think. Uh, for example, I was uh, working my way through school at uh, Madison College, Tennessee, where you were teaching and pastor there. And we, I was taking care of alcoholics and drug addicts and mental patients. And one time we had a patient that came in that was so incoherent and combative, he just was non-communicative. The physicians didn't know what was wrong with him. He had no outward clinical symptoms of a vitamin deficiency. But a week on the good diet, uh, he could think just as clearly as you and I. And he had been eating soda crackers and uh, drinking coffee uh, with sugar in it, a limited variety of highly refined and empty calories. So he had developed enough of a deficiency of B vitamins so that he was mentally deranged. Think of that. Just think of that. Another study in Toronto, Canada, at an outpatient clinic, uh, investigators there observed that the women in early pregnancy were, many of them were, um, they were troubled about everything. Their housework bothered them. Uh, they uh, were not happy. They paid little attention to the needs of the family. Their hair was unkempt, slovenly in appearance. And so they decided to give them a better diet. And three weeks on this improved diet, they were much more cheerful, happy. They had a much more positive outlook on life. Their hair was kept nicely. They were dressed nicely. So here's a situation where uh, the mother was either filling the place in her home or she was... Uh, not, depending upon uh, whether she obtained a good diet or not. Think of that, and, th and you can get it in bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say just bananas, uh, but... Uh, of course, I'm saying that because I'm a banana fiend. <laughs> yes, I see. Also, just a short-term lack of food can have a marked effect upon one's behavior. There were two studies in teenage uh, children. Uh, they observed that these children in the latter part of the morning had a short attention span. They were less alert. Uh, they were less productive. They made poor grades on their report cards. Uh, they had social problems. And in studying into these problems, they found that they weren't eating breakfast. And when they brought them in and gave them a good breakfast, then sent them to classroom, they were much happier. They related better to the peers. Uh, they uh, could work better in their work. Less, they were more alert. They had a longer attention span. And it made all the difference in their uh, performance in school. And even in adults, we find the same type of situation. If uh, adults don't eat breakfast uh, in the latter part of the morning, they have a 
increased tremor magnitude. They're more shaky. Uh, they have a shorter attention span. Uh, they're less productive. And they're more liable to accidents. In fact, in one southern cotton mill in Carolina, they found that 70% of the accidents of the workers were people who were not eating a good breakfast. Of all things. So your productivity uh, is greatly impaired by just a short-term lack of uh, good breakfast. You know, the word break fast, uh, you should break that fast. Uh, uh, you... You wouldn't think about going off during the day with an empty tank of gas. And when we go off to work, we need to have a well-fueled tank so that we can be more productive and more alert right. in our work. What about a person eating between meals? Does that have any influence on stress or worry? Or well, it has been definitely shown that when children are allowed to eat between meals especially, they become more irritable, they're more unmanageable, and uh, rebellious in their attitude. Uh, and they are generally poor performers. And of course, we know when uh, adults eat between meals, uh, there's a greater tendency to overeat. And you've heard the definition of a between meal snack. It's the pause that refreshes. The pause that refreshes. And of course, when we <laughs> overeat, this uh, benumbs the sensitive nerves of our brain and weakens its vitality, even if we overeat of good food. And so we have to uh, watch that. And it's when we eat high-fat, high-concentrated, empty-calorie foods that we tend to overeat, rather than eating more unrefined foods like whole grains and legumes, uh -huh. uh, fruits and vegetables, milk, and this type of food. Thank you. If you were to, if you were to say, present to us and to our viewers four or five or six specific suggestions uh, regarding uh, diet as it relates to stress, what would you? Uh, to summarize, what would your one, two, three, four, five be? Well, at first I'd say eat a good breakfast. Uh, as one person says, eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and supper like a pauper. <laughs> Isn't that good? Another is, I would say, eat a wide variety of foods, not a limited variety. Most, Many of the nutrition problems we find in the aged is due to eating a limited variety. Not too great a variety at one meal because this would tempt us to overeating. I'm sure you've been to some of these potluck dinners and you yes. want to try everything. And right. There are ten desserts and you want to try all yes. ten of those. I don't want to so offend anybody. A variety either. from one meal to another. <laughs> and an, another emphasis would be on unrefined foods. As I mentioned, like whole grains and beans and peas, fruits and vegetables, uh, milk, this type of food. Mm. Uh, limiting the empty and refined calories like sugar, visible fats, uh, white refined cereal grains. Another I would say is uh, to follow some simple plan like the four food group plan. Use four servings of fruits and vegetables per day, four servings of the bread cereals per day, uh, two servings of milk, are suitable substitute and two servings of a protein-rich group in our diet. 
And if we eat this type of diet, limiting the empty calories, we don't have to worry about getting these vitamins and nutrients that we can have a healthy brain and can think clearly and therefore have a great resistance uh, to withstand the stress that come to us day by day. Of course, I think, too, that along with this, if we have this good diet and we have a reasonable exercise program and have adequate rest, we can also better withstand stress. Now, you mentioned before a question about a heavy evening meals and a high-fat diet. We know that when a person eats a heavy evening meal, especially like a 10-ounce steak or very high-fat diet in the evening, that after a period of time, the viscosity of the blood becomes thicker and the blood goes slower through the vein of the arteries and we get less delivery of oxygen to the tissues. And of course, there's a greater tendency toward atherosclerosis or depositing of fat and cholesterol in the arteries under those circumstances. And of course, if the arteries are narrowed, then you get less oxygen not only to the heart, but also to the brain. And so a person can get all types of mental abnormalities, as you see in some senile individuals. Uh, and often when you change their diet and put them on this program I mentioned, with less fat in the diet, they get a better delivery of oxygen to the brain, and they're able then to think clearly again. So these are a few some oh, suggestions. Thank I you very much, Dr. Register. Very gracious of you. We have announced, uh, advertised that tonight, during my part of the service, we're going to deal with how to, how to respond, how to approach addiction, addicts. Now, when we speak of addicts, we want to deal with a wide spectrum of addiction, uh, all the way from the addict who doesn't hang up his clothes to the one on, on hard drugs. You see, uh, a man that goes around the house and doesn't hang up his clothes, that's a bad habit. Right, ladies? I hear them saying, amen. So that's a bad habit. So he is an addict of carelessness. There are other addicts, tobacco addicts, alcohol addicts. There are uh, those who are sex addicts. There are those who, who are addicted to many areas of wrongdoing. Uh, there are husbands who are making a lot of little mistakes. And those little mistakes pile up until their wives realize that they're addicted to a lot of little habits that just, well, as I go in the house, I find the wife halfway up the wall. You know, husband just drives her right up the wall with a lot of little things that seem to affect her much worse than as though he smoked or as though he were drinking. So we're talking about how can we respond, how can we help people in all of these areas of life. I want to share with you, first of all, seven special secrets. The first one is humility, of all things. The humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. No individual is equipped to help any other individual if we take the higher-than-thou level. 
This is extremely important. If I'm working with an individual who is on alcohol, I find that the best way, the quickest way that I can help him is for me to recognize and to let him know that we're in the same boat. I have never drunk alcohol in my life, but that doesn't make me one bit better than he, right? Not a bit better. I, uh, in fact, I take no credit for the fact that I don't take alcohol. My father and mother placed a set of circumstances around me which made me have no craving for alcohol. So I have no right under any condition to place myself on a higher plane than the alcoholic. The tobacco addict, I have no right to take a sanctimonious attitude to the man who is smoking. I deserve no credit for never having smoked. None whatsoever. The reason I have never smoked is my father and mother placed around us circumstances that never caused me to even long or desire to smoke, you see. So there's no reason in the world why I have a right to take a holier-than-thou attitude towards someone else, no matter what his habit is. If I find a man who is infatuated with another man's wife, oh my, there's the opportunity for the coon in me to come out. I say, what in the world are you doing? Well, he knows what he's doing. I don't have to ask him, and I know what he's doing. And I know that I might be doing the same thing if I didn't know some of the things I know today. Do you see? So, first of all, is the humility of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, and verses 5 to 9, we read statements like this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. What is vainglory? I'm here and you're here. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. And Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that's the highest level, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He became man, second level. The servant of man, third level. Jesus looked up to longing sinners. He didn't look down. He looked up. He respected them. Mary Magdalene, the woman of Samaria, Zacchaeus, Matthew, who have you, you see? Jesus was born in a stable and cradled in a manger. He came down from glory land and was willing to undertake the jeerings, the humiliation through which he passed for one purpose, and that was to save an addicted planet. Since Jesus saw it was necessary for him to make himself of no reputation so we could approach him, shouldn't we be willing to humble ourselves and never take this holier-than-thou attitude? It's very important. Let's take a very simple example. Here is a father, a very righteous father. <laughs> he knows he's righteous. You ever see any of those? He has a boy that is rebellious. Maybe the boy's on drugs. Maybe the boy smokes or drinks or is a sexual individual or all. Now, the father wants to help this boy. 
He wants to get him off of smoking. He wants to get him to stop drinking. He wants him to leave the girls alone and leave the boys alone. Now notice one sentence that the father can speak to this boy that'll turn the boy farther from the father and farther from God. One sentence. Notice if he changes one sentence to another simple sentence, how it'll turn this boy toward his father. One sentence. All right, the first sentence is a sentence that does not conform to humility. Jim, we'll say, is his boy. Jim is over there in the corner, fooling around, get about ready to go out for another smoke or another girl, another boy, what have you. And he hears his father praying. Now notice, the father hasn't learned humility. The father's a very righteous man, you understand. He's very religious. He's very sanctimonious. So he prays like this, Oh, Lord, please help Jim to behave himself. And you know what happens? Jim can hardly wait to get out to smoke another cigarette. He can hear the cigarette saying, How mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? I'm much more mild than he. You see? So father drives his son to more nicotine. He drives his son to more alcohol. He drives his son to more of these ill habits. Now, if the father changed just one sentence, it would go like this. Dear Lord, please forgive me for being mean to Jim and help me, help me, Lord, to straighten up and behave myself. And Jim would say, Amen. Amen. Dad, Dad, I love you, Dad. Just one sentence. Now, there are many sentences that connote humility. This is just one. And it works wonders. A member of our team had a son who was, uh, who was really living in a, a life of vice. And uh, the father said to me, what in the world am I going to do with my boy? I said, uh, go up to him and say, Bill, will you forgive me? Forgive me for what? <laughs> forgive you for being what? Sanctimonious. Forgive you for being on the holier than thou level. We have no business being on that level. The Lord of life and glory taught us the lesson. In order for humanity to be able to approach him, he came down on humanity's level. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger, dying on the cross. He said, all right, I'll do it. Two days later, he came back. He said, Pastor, uh, you can't imagine what happened. He said, my son was in the room with me. And he said, I turned to my boy and I said, what do we call his name, Bill? All right. He said, Bill, will you forgive Daddy for being mean to you? He said, tears came to Bill's eyes, and he came over to me, and he threw his arms around me and said, Dad, I love you. First thing to be learned, and I take it from my favorite author in the book, Desire of Ages, page 250. The first thing to be learned by all who would be workers together with God is the lesson of self-distrust. It means then that instead of our towering over the people we want to help, instead of picking on them, Instead of belittling them, instead of trying to shame them into a better life, we let the Holy Spirit do it. John 16, 8 says, When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It means this. When the Holy Spirit comes to a person who is doing wrong, the Holy Spirit doesn't tower over him. The Holy Spirit very sweetly, very kindly says something like this. Bill, 
it's true you are doing wrong. Now that's convicting him of sin. That's the first of the three things in that text. But, Bill, you can find a beautiful life. I'll help you. That's the second. The third is, and Bill, you can face the final judgment and go right through the gates to the new Jerusalem, washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts. He doesn't just say, look at how long you've been doing this. Why in the world are you doing this? No, he said, it's true you are doing wrong, but I will help you to live the good life. And you can face the judgment in peace. Humility. The humility of Jesus. We call this law, the law of the third horizontal level down. <laughs> because Jesus was God, first level. He became man, the second level. He became the servant of man, third level down. Now, when we take this attitude, the person we're trying to help begins to feel at ease in our presence. And you can help no one unless that person feels at ease in our presence. When we get down on that level, they begin to feel what I'm getting let up for air. The second law of human ease is choice. And the Bible is full of it from Genesis to Revelation. And yet I have found in my ministry, it seems that the most conscientious Christians, so-called, are those that are the quickest to deprive their loved ones of choice. Here's a text, Joshua 24, 15. Choose you. Choose you. You know what most of us Christians are, are doing? We're saying, I choose for you. <laughs> I choose for you. You see? A certain lady came to me and she said that uh, her husband wasn't doing as he ought to do. <laughs> of course, that's very rare, as you understand. And uh, she said, he and I are having a disagreement as what we should do on a certain day. He thinks we have a right to go there, and I think we shouldn't. And I said, well, uh, what is your decision? She said, I don't think we should go. I think we'd be sinning. I said, well, you've made your choice then, haven't you? But she said, he thinks it's all right to go. I said, then he's made his choice, hasn't he? And then she began to wring her hands. She said, but if he goes, he'll be sinning. I said, doesn't he have a right to sin? She said, but if he sins, he'll be lost. I said, doesn't he have a right to be lost? Now, I wasn't belittling sin. You understand, don't you? I wasn't be belittling being lost. But what I was trying to convey to her was she could not be conscience for him and cause him to change. That's why we read in Ecclesiastes 7.16, Be not righteous over much. <laughs> the Bible says be righteous. But don't be righteous over much. To be righteous over much means that I am conscience for somebody else. To be righteous over much means that I think that it's my duty to tell another person what to do, whether he asks or not. Now, let me give you a couple wise sayings. <laughs> Men will come to me all over the place, and fathers, Men whose wives are not doing right, you know. And I'll say, look, are you telling your wife what to do? And you know what they're liable to say? They say, the Bible says I'm the head of the house. I said, that's right. But the Bible doesn't say to be the blockhead of the house. You're the blockhead when you try to block your wife's choices. You see, every time you try to block her choices, you're the blockhead. 
And the Bible doesn't say the husband is the blockhead of the house. You, you fill in that word by your actions. And I said, don't tell her anything to do. Don't tell her one thing to do. He said, what? That's what. We're telling you what. <laughs> don't tell her anything to do. She's an individual. <clears throat> and surrounding her is an invisible circle. And within that invisible circle, no human being has the right to penetrate except by invitation. And once in a great long, 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 long while, some lady will come. And she'll say, I'm so glad you've said what you have to the men. But you know, I, I really, you don't know my husband. I have to take my husband in tow. <clears throat> Can you imagine taking him in tow? And, and I will say, now look, according to the law of choice, there's an invisible circle around him, and you have no right to penetrate it. Now, I said, let me share with you, so you'll know forever now, since you've come. Don't tell your husband anything to do. Even if he puts his socks in the frying pan. And she said, that's a joke. No, that's not a joke. That's a law. That's a principle. Now, I said, let me show you how to work. If you don't tell your husband one thing to do, if he puts his socks in the frying pan, if you just sit back and are really quiet, it will be only a matter of minutes before the socks will convey their own message. You see? And he will never engage in sock omelet again. Never. But if you get ahead of the socks, then it's between you and him, you see? And he's liable to do it again. I said, the Lord that we serve in heaven... He gives us the privilege of making second best choice, third best choice. If we want to sow wild oats, that's all right. But you will reap what? Wild oats. The Lord doesn't say, I'm going around and pull up the wild oats. I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to let you make your choice that is diametrically opposed to the best for you. Then as you begin to find that when you plant thorns, you will find your your being is, is wounded by these thorns, then you will say, oh, I, I, I prefer your method, Lord. I prefer your life to mine. Choice. Choice. Uh, the, there's a favorite author of mine who has written a book entitled Education. <laughs> and on page 41 of that beautiful book, this seems to sum up the whole gamut of the Bible on choice. And it goes like this, page 41 of that beautiful book, Education. It says that true education, speaking about helping people like this, true education is not forcing instruction on an unready and unreceptive mind. Never, never, never do I have a right to force instruction on anybody. Isn't that tremendous? Now you see, if I don't force instruction on them, then I have obeyed another law of of human ease. When I don't belittle a person, when I don't boss a person, I've obeyed the law of humility and the law of choice. The law of choice is the law of, of, of the sovereign will. This man is sovereign of that territory inside of that circle. When I don't belittle anyone, when I don't try to, to educate any adult except as he wants to know, he feels at ease in my presence. If he feels ill at ease, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit, not mine. 
Now, when I want to help a person, how can I help a person if there's a gulf that I formed between myself and him? So every time I pick on him, every time I belittle him, instead of helping him, I'm driving him farther away. Every time I try to make a decision for him, I'm driving him farther away. I've been literally astonished at what can happen. I think, I'm thinking of a lady that came to me. She drove about 140 miles. We have a lot of people coming for counsel. And she said, Pastor, I've come to you for counsel. I said, all right. I said, first of all, let me tell you what my counsel is going to be. Don't do anything I tell you to do unless I read it from the book. Oh, she said, now, now I am ready for counsel. I said, the next bit of counsel is this. Though I read it from the book, I have no right to do the applying in your case. I'll read rules from the book. I'll present to you principles. I'll present to you cases of people who have failed to live up to these principles, how they failed and suffered. And I'll also present to you how when people have lived up to these principles, how they've succeeded. But I must not take the place of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave this book. Only the Holy Spirit can interpret it. So you look to the Holy Spirit. I will share with you many illustrations. I will share with you many principles. But I do not have a right to start trying to choose exactly how you're going to apply these, do you see? The laws of humility and choice. Jesus lived up to these to the hill. He said, he said in effect, if you choose to come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said, that's Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. So you see, a very important choice is, among the important things of choice is this. I have found that many, many people who really love the Lord Jesus with all their hearts, and they see some friend they want to help, they make this mistake. After they help this person, they then start to possess them. Friends, if you and I do anything to help somebody, don't take him over. Don't do it. Illustration. <clears throat> we had a little toy Pomeranian. I love them. And I said, I'm going to see now. I'm going to see what happens to this toy Pomeranian when I love the toy Pomeranian versus when I possess the toy Pomeranian. So the little toy Pomeranian uh, climbed in my lap. And, uh, oh, I went something like this. I put my arms around this toy Pomeranian and told the little toy, oh, how I love you. And the toy liked it. You know why? There's plenty of room for her to move. Then I began to draw her very close to myself because I loved her so much. And I was so eager for her best good that I just pressed very tightly. And I said, I like you so much. I timed how long it was before she was restless. You know how long it was? It wasn't a minute. Before a minute had passed, this toy Pomeranian that I thought so much of and I wanted to help so much, inside of a minute, it, the toy Pomeranian, Pomeranian went like this. <coughs> but I said, but I love you. I'm doing it because I love you. And inside of another three minutes, that toy Pomeranian was saying, oh, let me go. But I love you. I'm possessing you because I love you. Please let me live my life. I'm now worried. Please let me stop worrying and begin living. 
And every time that you and I start possessing people because we've done them a favor, we are, we are saturating them with stress because we're not letting them breathe. You see, it's happening all over this country. The finest, most sincere people in this world are actually possessing people. The Bible says, withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he hate thee. So go to see a person, visit them, slip out, and don't try to take them over. I'm thinking of a very fine Roman Catholic lady who was in one of our services. At the close of the service, we invited people who would like to make a special commitment to our Lord to stand. I made the, the invitation so broad that a Methodist or a Catholic or a Baptist or an Adventist or who have you could make a commitment, could stand in the, in the area of their own thinking. This fine Catholic lady stood. I had been in her home, very lovely lady. She stood. At my extreme right, there was a member of our own church family. And when this lady, and the two ladies knew each other, when this lady saw this very lovely Catholic lady stand, this lady thought, I must do something now. I must do something. So she made her way through the, through the pews, started down the aisle. She started right toward this very fine neighbor of hers. And when she got within about 10 feet, this fine Catholic lady raised both arms. She said, lady, please, please, just pray for me and shut up. <laughs> oh, that's the law of choice. That's the law of choice. Isaiah 30, verse 15, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And if people do ask us for counsel, don't overfeed them. If a person asks for a spiritual sandwich, don't give him a seven-course meal. Don't, don't even give him a full-course meal. Give him a little sandwich. And he'll say, oh, that was so good. I'd like another one. You see? All right. Now there are two other laws, Jesus and his joy. Jesus and his joy. If we follow the, the humility of Jesus and the choice of Jesus, people feel at ease in our presence. Now we want them to actually be drawn to the Christ in us. For if we can draw them to the Christ in us, they'll be satisfied without these vices. For Psalm 16, 8 and 11 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. If I can draw them that now in a way that they love to be drawn, they'll find the path of life instead of the path of vice. And it says, in his presence is fullness of joy. Now, how can I be used of my Lord to draw people to the Christ in me so that they will not crave all of these other things? Jesus and joy. The Bible contains 826 texts of Scripture that tells us to be joyful, happy, full of praise, full of thanksgiving, vibrant, delightful Christians, 826. Can you imagine, friends, in spite of all those injunctions, you know, one of the saddest things I think I can look at is a 150-pound Christian wart. full of stress, full of worry, and wondering why their loved ones don't want what they have. Who wants, who wants a wart? Who wants a 150-pound wart? Who wants the worry and stress that they see in the Christian's life? Who wouldn't prefer a good cigarette 
to a miserable Christian. Amen? Who wouldn't prefer a social glass to a Christian that's so unsocial? And he said, look, you better behave or the seven last plagues are about to come to you. And the person said, I think I've just seen the first plague. Or he said, look, don't you realize what you're bringing on yourself? A terrible time of trouble. And the person said, well, you're the biggest trouble to me. Well, he said, don't you realize the pestilence are coming? And he said, well, you're the first pest. If I want a person to have what I have, let him know that what I have has made me happy. And it has. And it has. And if it has not made me happy, then let me go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, help me to get rid of my guilt and believe that you forgive and cleanse me when you promise and believe that you'll keep your word when you say that you will save these dear friends of mine for whom I'm praying and help me to pray for them and shut up, you see. But let me not be a worry wart. Oh, there's, you know, I've said again and again, if a new denomination were to spring up in the most desolate place of America, I care not what name they went by. If in that denomination, everybody was happy, nobody was criticizing anybody, no one took a sanctimonious stance, do you know what would happen? That denomination would grow to millions. People would crowd in from all over the world. Everybody is happy. Nobody is criticizing. Nobody is belittling others. No worry warts. Everybody is joyful. I believe that men and women who are trying to help addicts in any area of life ought to come to Jesus Christ and find that, that he has given us promises. In the Bible, there are 3,573 promises. We have a right to claim his promise to work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Then we have a right to say, Lord, you've promised to save this loved one. Isaiah 49, 24 and 25. Even though they're the prey of the terrible, though they're covered and filled with vice, Lord, you've said that your power is strong enough. The word that healed the leper, that raised the dead is strong enough to save men and women who are on vices. Then we can reflect the joy because Romans 15, 13 says there's joy and peace in believing. If I believe that the Lord will, through me, help a person who is addicted, if I really believe it, am I going around with my head bowed down like a bulrush? Am I going to look like a crab? I've said, friends, it's bad enough to be a coon without being a crab. What do you say? Let's be happy. The last three principles are faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. They're found in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. I'm glad so many are taking notes. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Now abideth faith, hope, charity. Faith, hope, love. These three principles are laws of divine pressure. You see, choice and humility are laws of human ease. So I'm not to belittle people. I'm not to, not to pick on them. But there are three principles. If Jesus in me carries out, People will long to do better. They'll long to live a better life. It's faith, hope, and love. Now notice, when Jesus and me express his faith in a person in vice, you mean Jesus will help me to talk faith in a man who is full of vice? Yes. This is what happens. First John 5, 4. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. When I say, look, 
You know what I think? I believe you're going to be a tremendous personality. I believe you have a beautiful future. You know what happens? He wants to live up to my confidence. I know it because I know what my mother did for me at the age of nine. And you remember what you and I were sharing the other day, Brother Pastor Troyer? You're telling how your parents spoke faith in you and you long to live up to their confidence. And my mother said to me when I was nine years old, planning on baptism, I looked like six. She said to me, you're almost a man. I thought, are you kidding? She said, and you're going to be a Samuel or a Joseph or a Moses. <laughs> and I looked, I thought, what, have you lost your mind? Really, she meant it. She had very poor judgment. <laughs> but she had a lot of faith. And every time I was accosted by the evil one, tempted to go into some of these vices, I remembered what mother said, you're going to make it. You have a mission in life. That's faith. And the spoken faith builds hope. Romans 8, 24, we're saved by hope. When we talk faith in anybody that's an error as we do it, we talk faith in him, it builds his hope, and he's saved. You mean I can make the great? Of course you can. Faith, hope, and love. How do you express love? This is how you express love. You shake a person's hand. They see love in your eyes. They see love in your teeth. And when you shake hands, before you quite let go, you shake, give another little squeeze. And that little squeeze says, I'm interested in you. I'm very much interested in you, extremely interested in you. And I want to see you happy and joyful. Yes. And, and uh, I'll, I'll show you how we do it. May I shake your hand? Now, I'm smiling at you. I've, I've been impressed with you ever since you two people sat here. I really have been. I said, they're an inspiration to me. Now, I'm smiling at you, my eyes are smiling, and I shake your hand, then just before I let go, I do this. And that says something wonderful between us. What do you think of that? Love, faith, hope, and love. And love never fails, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Do it to the alcoholic. Do it to the person who is on drugs. Say, I believe you have a tremendous future, tremendous future. I know you have a tremendous future, and you'll be astonished. We could give you example after example, and the tape that you'll get tonight to take home with you as a follow-up has one full hour of experiences that we haven't had time to even get into at this time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.